Welcome to the School of Travels podcast. I'm your host, Becky Gillespie, and each week I bring you stories of how travel can truly change your life if you take the chance to get out on the road and step out of your comfort zone. My guests also share travel tips and lessons they've learned along the way, which I hope inspires you to let travel be your teacher. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the School of Travels podcast. This week, I sit down with Martine Yelema, another traveler just starting out on her digital nomad journey. And we're going to discuss how her early passion for gymnastics inspired a love for languages, which then eventually led her to be able to make a full-time income as a translator and proofreader on the road. Not only does Martine speak six different languages, but she also has a wide variety of interests, including photography, architecture, and even taking her drone with her on the road to help with creating travel videos. During the interview, Martine and I discuss how she's adjusting to digital nomad life, what it's like to travel alone as a woman in the Middle East, and her favorite places to visit as someone with a passion for photography. I hope you enjoy my interview with Martine. Welcome to episode 22 of the School of Travels podcast. Today I'm here with Martine. Thank you for joining me today, Martine. Very happy to be here. So thank you for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. And Martine is one of my fellow co-workers at Coworking Bonsco here in Bulgaria. And Martine, can you tell us a little bit about yourself to start out with? Yeah, my name is Martine, as Becky just told you. I'm 47 years old. I'm originally from the Netherlands and I've done a lot of traveling in the last few years. Um, I studied Chinese and English literature and I'm currently a translator and proofreader, although I'm trying to become more of a photographer and a videographer. Great. Yeah, I know we bonded initially because we realized that we were both proofreaders. So I used to be a secretary for a little while. I was trying to write a book at one point and I needed an easy job on the side to earn a bit of money, sort of a part-time job. So I worked as a secretary at the Red Cross for a while. And while I was there, they realized my English was very good and they asked me to proofread their speeches and English language publications and sometimes letters and you know, other things. And that's how I realized that I was actually very good at um, editing their speeches and all their English language publications they had. So people realized it was good and they kept asking me to do more and more and more of that. And eventually I left the Red Cross and became a full-time translator. So I started out as a literary translator and then eventually moved into more commercial work. And yeah, I do proofreading on the side as well. I think this is inspirational for people that are English literature majors because I'm told in the US, oh, don't major in English literature. What kind of job can you get from that? But there's a lot of jobs out there. You can actually, yes. You can definitely find a job if you want to. And um, yeah, for me, it was just, I love being, well, anal about language really. For me, it felt like a natural thing to turn that into my job. So, yeah, that's how I rolled into it. Definitely a skill. Mm. You said you've done a lot of traveling in the last few years. Let's go back to the beginning here. I like to do this with my guests. So, how do you think you got inspired and so interested in travel itself? Basically began when I was a child, and I would say that reading got me into traveling. As a child, I read a lot of Enid Blyton books. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Enid Blyton, but she was a British author who wrote The Famous Five and lots of stories about girls on British boarding schools. And there was a lot of traveling in those, a lot of adventures, and they really, really got me into that. They also turned me into a bit of an Anglophile. As a child, my dream was to go to England and attend a British boarding school and just be, basically be more English than the English. So that was one thing that got me into traveling. And then my parents had an 
awesome photo book of the Alhambra, which they visited when I was a baby. And as a child, I would often leave through that book and look at the photos and go, wow, this is so beautiful. Um, the Alhambra, of course, is gorgeous Moorish architecture. It has all these colourful tiles and the, the architecture is just stunning. And even as a child, I was fascinated by that. So I wasn't you know, quite the architecture junkie then that I am now, but I just love looking at those photos and seeing all the colours and seeing all those exotic patterns. And that just really got me interested in foreign cultures, foreign architecture and travelling itself. And also I had this series of fairy tale books which were gorgeously illustrated. They were fairy tales from all over the world and the Asian fairy tales in particular came with gorgeous illustrations of you know, very exotic things and I would just look at those illustrations and go I want to go there, I want to see that. And in hindsight I've been seeing that some of those illustrations were a bit tacky but as, as a child I absolutely loved them and I, I just wanted to yeah, know more about the countries that produce those fairy tales and those illustrations that had that particular aesthetic so that was mostly China and Vietnam and so that's how I got into China. Oh I was going to ask you if you remember like a particular picture from that fairy tale book that always you know drew you to it and you're like I must go to that place. Or... Uh, it would have been illustrations of women wearing gorgeous exotic clothes so not well they wouldn't have been kimonos because they were mostly Chinese fairy tales but sort of kimono like and I guess like I said, I just really like that aesthetic and that got me into Asia. Awesome. So do, have you been to the Alhambra? No, I haven't. That's the most amazing thing. I've been all over the world, but I still haven't been to the Alhambra and I'm planning to do so next year. Okay, could you tell listeners, just in case they don't know, where is the Alhambra? It's in the south of Spain, in a region called Andalusia, which used to be, um, which was conquered by the Moors, so the Arabs at one point. I think that would have been the 9th or 10th century thereabouts. So southern Spain was ruled by the Arabs for several centuries and they left these really beautiful buildings in the south of Spain that um, still exist today, have been very well preserved and attract millions of tourists a year and one day I will be one of them. I can't wait to hear about it when you finally see <laughs> Have you it. been there? I haven't been. No, I haven't been there, but I'm actually planning to go probably the end of September. I have a friend who's in Granada, yeah. and I believe it's in Granada, yeah, 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 or closest yeah. to that yes. city yes, of Granada, yes. yeah. and he said that he can see the Alhambra from his place. I remember you telling me that. Yes, yeah. you're going to have a great time. Yeah, and listeners, I'm going to have him on the podcast when I'm there. He's already, <laughs> he's already requested. He heard the podcast, and he's like, I want to be on it, so... Yeah, that should be fun. Let I'll you know. be interested in hearing his stories as well. So. Yes, yeah, growing up there. What's it like to grow up by the Alhambra? Yeah, I wonder what that does for your aesthetic, for, for how you feel about architecture and just exotic styles. That's a really good question. <laughs> so <laughs> they kind of spoil you. They kind of ruin you for other places, I think. I mean, if you grow up next to something like that, it's like, what's going to top that? But yeah, there are always gorgeous other things out there to explore. So. Do you think that's one reason you haven't been there? To the Alhambra. No, it just hasn't happened. Um, I don't know why. It's just there are always other countries that I wanted to go to more, and I think for a time I forgot about the Alhambra as well. Um, and then you know I was reminded of its of, of its existence when I started traveling in Morocco. And of course in Morocco, the style of architecture is very similar. I mean, yeah, it was basically the Moroccans who colonized southern Spain, so they built the Alhambra. Um, but yeah, I, I think. For a while I was really into Asia and South America and Australia and I kind of forgot about Spain. 
It's just one of those things that happens. It's, it's also not that far from the Netherlands, I know. We exactly. tend to do that, right? Yeah, we, yeah, we go those far places. away, and then we yeah realize that there are actually gorgeous things much closer to home, much later on. And but yes, Spain is very very high on my to do list now. Awesome. So, and at some point, hopefully in the not too distant future. Oh. So you have these really strong influences from reading and your parents' photo books at home, mm-hmm. and then what was the next step? Would you say in your travel? experience when where did you first go it made a huge impression on you when you finally got out there Romania probably so as you know I used to be a massive gymnastics junkie and my favorite team was the Romanian women's team which at the time was top of the world they were the 1987 world champions and uh, for a while in the late 1980s they also had the most artistic team in the world and I just loved watching them I was obsessed with them to the point where I even learned Romanian so as a 17-year-old, I traveled to what was then still the Socialist Republic of Romania. This happened in the summer of 1989, just a few months before the, the dictator Nicolae Ceausescu was deposed. So I got to see Romania at its very, very worst. So in the summer of 1989, it was at its poorest and um, there was nothing there, basically. And I've been told it was going to be so. Uh, I've been told to expect extreme poverty and... Uh, bad food and just yeah a, a very strange experience for a Western European and it was it was a very strange experience but very very impressive I did get to see the Romanian gymnasts as well so basically at the time it was hard for tourists to enter Romania so you needed a proper excuse to enter the country and my excuse was taking a Romanian course at the University of Bucharest Um, But that was only an excuse uh, to get into the country and what I really wanted to do was visit as many Romanian gymnastics clubs as I could with my friend who was a fellow gymnastics junkie. So that's what we did. So in the mornings we would attend courses at the university and in the afternoons and evenings as well we would go to gymnastics clubs and see their gymnasts in action just day after day after day and we never got tired of it. Wow, how do you get, do you have to get an invitation into the club to visit it or would you just walk into the building and um, say I want to see <laughs> I have no idea how this would work. Well, we tried to do it the official way through the Romanian Gymnastics Federation which at the time was a very socialist organization in the sense that they weren't really allowed to talk to foreigners either and they disliked the media very much as well and both my friend and I were gymnastics journalists at this point so um, I became a gymnastics journalist at age 17 and (laughs) yeah just this love of gymnastics and the love of the team yeah such a passion for it yeah basically it happened because I could speak Romanian so at one point um, I contacted a Dutch gymnastics magazine and asked them for pictures of certain Romanian gymnasts that I was going to send to those gymnasts and they were like, well, we can't help you with the photos, but does the fact that you have Romanian pen pals actually mean that you speak Romanian? And I wrote back and said, yes, I do speak Romanian. And one of their editors rang me up and said, well, as it happens, I'm going to Belgium next weekend to interview a few Romanian gymnasts. Would you like to be my interpreter? And I was like, yes! Oh, wow. <laughs> and at the time, my Romanian was really, really poor, but uh, it was a great experience. And then... That same editor said, well, you just did the interview, you might as well write it out as well. And that's how I rolled into being a gymnastics journalist. So after that, I started attending competitions and writing competition reports and 
mostly with a Romanian focus, but yeah, that's how I became a gymnastics journalist. So the thing is, the Romanian Gymnastics Federation knew that I was a journalist. They knew my friend was a journalist and they hated us for it. Um, so they didn't really want us to visit any gymnastics clubs and they sort of tried to fob us off with um, a rather bad club. Only we accidentally went to the wrong club which was one of the top clubs in the country, oh. and told them, hey, we have the Romanian Gymnastics Federation's permission to come and watch training sessions here. And they were like, well, okay, we've been told to ask for a particular person. And um, the people at the club were like, well, we don't know that person, but if the Romanian Gymnastics Federation has given you permission to visit our club, come in, we're happy to have you. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so in the end, you know, just, I think about two weeks later, they found out about our mistake. Uh, the Romanian Gymnastics Federation actually sent a representative telling the coaches at their club that um, they shouldn't have received us, that you know, we, they had never given us permission to visit that particular club. But by that stage, we'd become good friends with the coaches, and um, the coaches were fairly rebellious. They didn't care what anyone said. Mm -hmm. And they were like, we like these girls, and they can stay. So we ended up staying and um, yeah, watched a whole lot of gymnastics and um, it was a fabulous experience. But like I said, Romania at the time was really poor and I just, for a 17 year old, it was really hard to grasp what was going on there. The political repression that was going on at the time, the fact that so many people were not allowed to speak to us, the fact that the shops were empty, um, there was nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, we basically ate the same thing for four weeks because that was the only food they had. So that was an interesting first travelling experience, but um, it didn't put me off travelling, as you... Oh, I mean, it's, it's like you see this extreme side of things that, you know, most people wouldn't see at that age, that weren't living in it. And, it exactly. You know. I mean, as, as a Dutch 17-year-old, you're sort of supposed to go to Ibiza and have a disco and partying holiday, and I was never into that. I just wanted to see gymnastics. So I did. And in a way, I consider myself fortunate to have seen Romania like that, because obviously just a few months later it changed, the dictator was deposed. It was, I think, Christmas Day or right around Christmas? Yeah, right around Christmas, yes. And I was glued to my TV set at the time, and um, I visited the country two years later, and so much had changed in just those two years. It was incredible. Wow. And you then went back I to the club, saw, saw your friends there. Yes, yes, and by that time they were actually allowed to, to talk to us, so that was great. We actually stayed at um, some gymnast houses, so their families looked after us, which was fantastic. And we really got to see a completely different side of Romania that was incredibly hospitable, and um, so all those people who hadn't been allowed to talk to us before suddenly were incredibly welcoming. and very apologetic for not having been so welcoming before but you know obviously we understood we knew they weren't allowed to talk to us yeah it was seeing a completely different side of the country and a very good side of the country that really made me feel fall in love with romania it's, it's a beautiful country wow and, and this year it's been 30 years right it's been 30 yes, years this year it has been 30 years and you went 30 years at christmas yes yeah, yeah, so i was in romania ago. just a few months ago and um visited a few places that i've first visited 30 years ago and found that they changed completely. I barely recognise them anymore. Yeah, obviously it's a different country now. It's, it's become very westernised in a good way, I would say. It's beautiful. To any listeners who have no idea what Romania is like, it's a beautiful mountainous country with some very, very picturesque medieval cities. Places like Sibiu, Brasov, Sikishwara, which are incredibly picturesque. 
They have these beautiful squares with lovely old town halls, very colourful houses, you know, streets where every house has a different colour and just incredibly picturesque. And I was so glad to be able to visit it again and see it now that it's been renovated, now that it's had the proper care that it didn't have back in the 80s when people were too poor to look after their cities properly and now these cities are being done up very nicely and they're finally beginning to get the tourist they deserve and I'm trying very hard to spread the gospel of Romania. <laughs> yeah, I mean I, I have some Romanian friends and I've been wanting to go for a while. And you should, um, you really should. Yeah. It's still off the beaten path for a lot of people. They still think that it's not the country, you know, like it's not the first place they want to go in Europe. Um, I know it's Eastern Europe and yeah. It's still growing as a tourist destination, but I it, mean, it is but very it's, underrated. It's incredibly underrated, I would say. It's um, to some extent I can see why it's underrated because the public transport is quite poor there, and a lot of tourists depend on public transport. But if you get over that, or even better, if you can hire a car, you get to see so many beautiful places. The, the mountains are gorgeous. The seaside is lovely. The cities, like I said, some of them are incredibly picturesque and. And the people are lovely too. So, yeah, I really encourage everybody to check out Romania. Seriously, yes. look, look up some photos and you'll be impressed. You've sold me, Martina. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. All right, so you were already a gymnastics journalist at the age of 17, and then you must have felt, with that experience, like away from your parents, all there with your friend, it must have felt just really liberating. Like, I can do this. I can travel. I can learn so much from what I choose to seek out from my passions. Yes. Well, for the next few years after that, many of my trips were still quite gymnastics related, but eventually I discovered photography and that's when my trips became more photography related. So I started picking my destinations based on photos and based on beautiful things that I wanted to take pictures of. So yeah, my approach kind of changed a bit, but um, it all started with gymnastics. Wow. Now you mentioned that you had a childhood love for Asia as well. Did you have yeah. you made it over to Asia? Yes. Like I said, I got a degree in Chinese, and part of that degree was my having to study in a Chinese-speaking country for a year. Now most of my fellow students went to the People's Republic of China. I chose to go to Taiwan instead. I really like Taiwan, and that too, I think, is a very underrated travel destination. It's actually quite a beautiful country, and most people would never go there because they associate Taiwan with industry and manufacturing, and that's that's all they know about the country, but it is actually a very, very picturesque country too. Well, I actually spent two years in Taiwan, but during my first year, I visited China, Hong Kong, South Korea, and the Philippines. Great. And yeah, that was great. Well, um, in Taiwan, you had to leave the country every three months to have a visa run. So um, that's why all of us traveled a lot. It's quite centrally located there, actually. From all my time in Japan, I know it wasn't far from Japan and it wasn't far from mainland China, all these other places. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's very good to, if if you want to go to, you know, places like South Korea or the Philippines. Yeah, so I did. And then after my second year in Taiwan, I um, visited Thailand, Burma, Cambodia, Laos. Um, so yeah, I've seen a bit of Asia now. Great. Okay, so after the gymnastics, you switched over to photography. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to ask people what's your favorite, what do you have a favorite country that's with, for the beautiful photographs that you could get there. But I would say, what is one of your favorites besides... Obviously Romania. (laughs) Um, Morocco, I would say, is tremendously photogenic. Um, I've been to Morocco twice, and the second time was mostly because I lost all my photos of the first time due to a camera mishap. 
But like I said before, it, the architecture is amazing. I just really, really like Islamic architecture and um, Morocco has some of the best in the world. Um, it's so colourful, so sophisticated and very, very exotic. It's, uh, the buildings there are unlike anything you'll see in Western Europe and I'm drawn to that style, to those colours, to the carvings in the buildings and the woodwork as well, because they often come with woodwork. And uh, Morocco has that and it has very picturesque nature as well. So the mountains, the trees, it's, it's just an incredibly photogenic country. Um, also Burma, I really liked. Oh, yeah. And Italy, I suppose. Oh, yeah. I, I, I know everybody seems to want to go to Italy and I have a lot of friends who've been going this summer as well. It's a big, it's a hot destination, literally. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in many ways, yes, and very, very photogenic, so, yeah. I haven't seen enough of it. I've, I've only seen Rome and Naples and, you know, Pompeii and places like that. Um, I'm dying to go back and see more of it. Sicily in particular, I really want to visit. Yeah, I've heard it's, it's, a, it's a culture all its own down there. Yeah, Ireland. yeah, and so many Roman ruins and you know, old medieval and renaissance buildings. It's, it's got the whole thing. It's got gorgeous nature. It has the volcanoes. It has the old Roman stuff and then, you know, the later Italian stuff. It's, it's the perfect combination of everything. And for me, Martin, the food. The food, yes, yes. Great. I completely forgot about the food, yes. <laughs> well, have you done a lot of traveling alone? Yes, in fact, I would say most of my traveling was done alone okay. in all these places. I like traveling alone because I like doing <laughs> things my way, uh -huh. but it's mainly because I do take so many photos and videos. It takes time and I don't want to keep other people waiting or I don't like to have the feeling that I'm keeping other people waiting. Um, so yeah, no, I, I do a lot of my traveling alone and um, I enjoy it. Yeah, you set your own schedule. Yes. Do you ever feel afraid or, I mean, I know that listeners might think, you know, that sounds quite, in some of these countries, it sounds so brave of you. Like, aren't you scared to be out there by yourself? Sometimes I'm a bit scared. There have been a few situations where I felt what was probably an ir irrational fear um, I was on my own in a few places and people came up to me and they did not obviously have anything bad in mind but I was suddenly struck by this fear that if they did have something bad in mind I was completely on my own and no one knew where I was and no one would ever find me again if something happened and that got me a bit nervous but in all of those cases nothing happened. Um, I did have a few scary run-ins with men, particularly in Turkey, and that's when I felt a bit vulnerable being a woman on my own. But I was lucky in that, in the end, nothing really happened. Do you, so. that, do you have any tips or do you think there's anything you do that to kind of get over that fear or avoid situations like that? I think the main one is not to get drunk. I think that's <laughs> how a lot of women get in trouble. Yeah, that's They true. get drunk and they trust the wrong people and, you know, they just can't judge situations all that badly. So I don't do that. Um, I'm quite careful about how I deal with men in particular. And um, I can actually be a bit standoffish with men, sometimes a bit too much. But yeah, it's just, obviously, I try not to go out on my own late at night in places where I don't feel entirely safe and things like that, you know, common sense things. Mm -hmm. But I think the main thing is not to give men any incentives to try anything bad. So, like I said, I can be a bit standoffish with men when I'm traveling and 
yeah, just make sure I'm not caught in any positions where I'm vulnerable. I know that just in general, it's a, as someone who's also traveled quite a bit by herself, like it's just, unfortunately, it's just the way it is in the world that women are not treated the same as men. And yes. so cannot in all places of the world act exactly like they do. Yeah. And, and um, that goes for dress as well. I try yeah. also in places like Morocco, like you're talking about, or certain countries, you know that you, there's just certain clothes you really shouldn't wear. I'm very aware of that and I'm shocked when other people aren't. Um, one of the things I really noticed in Morocco last time I was there was that there were so many women, Western women, wearing really, really skimpy clothes. And I saw the way the Moroccan men look at them and I went like, why would you do this? It's, it's so disrespectful to travel like this and it's just stupid because you are going to attract the wrong type of man. I yeah. know those women, a lot of those women are thinking, no, I should have the freedom to dress really however I want, however. I should be able to express myself, but yes, in the culture, pick the right country to you, do so. Right, right. I just want to tell women, like, you know, you do, yeah, have to have a sense of time and place because yeah. it's just going to help you avoid so many situation. Yes, no, I totally agree on that. Um, I do try to cover up a bit when I'm in Islamic countries. Um, Iran was interesting in that respect because you actually have to wear a veil, so I had to get used to that. Um, that was the only time I've ever had to do that. I mean, if you go to places like Morocco or Indonesia or, you know, most other Islamic countries, you do have to cover up your arms a bit and um, preferably not wear tight clothing and stuff like that. But you don't actually have to cover your hair. But when you're traveling in Iran, you really have to wear baggy clothes and you have to cover your hair. And as a Western tourist as well. And um, I, yeah, I do those things. I don't make a problem out of them because that's their culture and I'm mindful of that. And I try to be respectful of the local culture. Mm -hmm. And it helps. Um, local people do see that you're making an effort to Maybe not quite blend in, but at least make an effort to, and they appreciate that in general. And it, it kind of helps you, you know, stay safe as well. Yeah, and like you were just saying, kind of ingratiate yourself into the culture a bit more. Yes. So I think that's, those yeah. are good practices for sure. Okay, this is kind of a deep question here. What would you say that travel has taught you about yourself? I think the main thing it has taught me is that I'm fairly resilient in that I get over setbacks quite easily and I have encountered a few setbacks while traveling. I've broken my arm while traveling, I've had oh. food poisoning, I had a nasty infection that you know caused me not to be able to walk for a little while, so stuff like that. Um, so yes, it, it has taught me that I can actually get over those things and um, not only get over them but really enjoy travel afterwards. Um, I've also learned that I'm very, very European. Oh, what do you mean by that? Asked an American. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's the way I deal with people. I'm very straightforward in my dealings with people and I find that people from other cultures find that hard to deal with sometimes. I lived in Australia for six and a half years and I thought when I moved to Australia that I was going to fit right in, that Australian culture was very similar to European culture and then I realised it wasn't all that similar and I did absolutely love Australia, I had a great time living there but it did reinforce that idea that I am very European and I belong in Europe. It's good to find that out about yourself through yes. first-hand experiences like this. And you have been definitely trying out these places, you didn't just <laughs> go on a trip, you lived there. So. Yes. Did you learn anything about yourself living in Japan? And 
Oh, yes. I think also, like you've said, it, it's that way that you're raised is so ingrained. Like, mm-hmm. I, on one hand, Americans, like, put on that happy face and they mm-hmm. don't tell you how they're really feeling sometimes. In Japan, it's quite similar, but yes. it's also even more cryptic. It's more, it's less direct. And we can be very open and tell you everything about us in the first 10 minutes. Yeah. And um, I, I realized that I liked that. I liked knowing people on a deeper, more open level. That it was a big challenge in Japan. It's hard to get to know Japanese people here. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah. I have many Japanese friends, but there are things that I still, I don't know about them. And that not knowing is kind of a barrier between us in my American mind. But yes. for them, it might feel ex- completely normal. Probably does. It yeah. probably does. So, yeah, yeah I learned mm-hmm. that. And I, I, being here in Bonsko, also, I love that small close-knit community where people are very open mm-hmm. to help to help and to talk with you and share their stories. But yeah, I'd say I learned similar things about my Americanness. <laughs> <laughs> but also, like, for example, in, um, this is a whole other podcast topic, but um, I learned in Japan what a single-payer health insurance system is like and how that can work. And I realized that things from my own country were not the greatest or the easiest way. You can find more positive things in other places. Yeah. And, try to find a way to make a mix of it work for you. Yeah, yeah, I find that fascinating as well. I mean, in every new country, you learn something new, you learn something about the culture or the history that you feel you might apply to your own life or that your country could do with as well. And it's, I find it interesting when those ideas are actually being implemented. And um, I'm trying to come up with an example, but... I can't really come up with any at the moment, but I've, I've, I've seen a few things that over the years that I saw abroad and that I saw then implemented in other countries and it was like, hey, see, people are listening to each other and learning things and um, doing something with that knowledge and yeah, I find that quite fascinating. Yeah, a lot of cross-pollination. As yes, the world that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, do you have a place that you would like to go next? Where is your next dream destination of all these places you've already been? My dream destination would probably be Namibia at this point. Oh, it's on my list too. Uh, <laughs> I haven't been down there. Why do you want to go to Namibia? I'm interested if you're going for the same reason. Uh, the scenery, yeah, essentially. Too. Like yeah. the canyons and the desert, the huge dunes. Yeah. I want to see those slide down them. Is that possible? I don't know. Yes. So yeah, that's the reason I want to go as well. Um, I will add one more thing. The dead trees. Oh. Uh, have you seen pictures of those? No. Okay, well, those are the classic Namibia photos. Um, Namibia has these sort of dead forests sitting in front of those big dunes that you were telling me about. So um, so you get these amazing white trees without any leaves. So you can really see the, the shapes of, of the branches, which are very, very beautiful. Uh, and then you get these orange and red dunes in the background with a bright blue sky above, and it just makes for the most Perfect photos. Oh. And I've been looking at those photos for years going, I want to go there, I want to go there. Um, so yeah, that's top of my list, but I know it's going to take me a while to get around to. I won't be doing it this year or next year. It will probably be the year after that. And, and like so many travellers, you feel like you have to get there in the right season? Maybe the that right too. light, best yeah. chance to get sun there or yeah. something? Yeah. And I'm also not quite sure how to do Namibia. I'm, I'm not quite sure whether Namibia is a destination I want to do on my own. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to sort of get someone to come with me. And I have friends who are interested in Namibia, but they've already been there. 
Uh, and others think it's too expensive because it is a fairly expensive destination. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to find travel partners who might want to go there with me. Yeah, so maybe okay. we should discuss this at some point. We should. Maybe we can talk to <laughs> Nick as well, another photographer friend yep. we've met here. Yep. Oh yeah, he would love it too. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think so. so so yeah, Namibia and Iceland, I would love to see. Mm-hmm. And, um, Beautiful, pl- another, of course, completely breathtaking place. Yeah, I've been wanting to go there for many, many years, but um, Iceland kind of became a hot place while I was living in Australia, and it was just too far away from Australia. If I had lived in Holland at the time, I would have been to Iceland five times by now, I think, but because I spent so much time in Australia, it was always just too far away. Oh, right? yeah. I was thinking, oh, so, from the Netherlands, not far, but yeah. No, it's not, it's not, it's not, but yeah, no, I was in Australia yeah. for six and a half years, and um, it was very far away from Australia. So I, I do have a question. How many languages do you speak in total? <laughs> uh, I speak six languages, and I read about twelve. Twelve? Yeah. Wow. So I speak Dutch, English, Romanian, Chinese, French, and German, and I have a reasonably good understanding of Italian, Spanish, and Portuguese. Classical Chinese, Latin, and Ancient Greek. Wow, I don't even know how you fit it all into your head, but, you know, the brain's a mysterious thing. <laughs> it is, it is. And passion. It sounds like you just had a passion. Yeah, I, I just love language. I, I really, really enjoy learning a new language and seeing the connections between the languages and also seeing how the languages, you know, um, reflect the culture. German, for instance, is a very precise and very meticulous language and that really reflects, you know, the German mentality. It's a bit of a cliche, but it's true, I think. Um, Dutch people can be a bit sloppy about things and that is also reflected in their language. Dutch is a bit of a sloppy, messy language. I love it. I love it a bit, but yeah, there's a part of me that thinks Dutch is a bit too sloppy sometimes. So <laughs> I, 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 love, I love seeing connections like that. I love seeing how a language reflects the so nature of the people. So I was recently in uh, Vienna and mm-hmm. I happened to find the Esperanto Museum. Very that sounds fascinating. Yeah, very small, I will, I will tell you, but um, I didn't know much about Esperanto and I just started thinking about this idea of a global language that we should all be using. What are your thoughts on that, being such a polyglot? Do you think we should all, everybody must learn English because it's already so, you know, common as a second language, or should it be Chinese? Should it be something like Esperanto, or? Uh, As a child, I was fascinated by Esperanto, and um, I may have made an effort to learn it at one point as well, but I gave up after a few weeks. Oh, that's so much fun. (laughs) No, it was fun. It's just I I was too young at the time and I was too busy doing gymnastics related stuff. So I think I discovered Esperanto in the same year I discovered gymnastics and gymnastics just took over my life um, at the expense of everything else. And um, so, yeah, I gave up on Esperanto, but uh, I I think English is today's Esperanto. Um, I do... Obviously, I think Chinese is going to be a major language as well. It already is, and I'm very pleased to see that kids are now learning Chinese in you know European and American schools, and um, I think that's a great thing, mm-hmm. um, and it really reflects today's society. But for all intents and purposes, English is today's lingua franca. Um, it is the language of trade, of tourism, and yes, I think the best thing people can do for themselves is learn proper English and. Um, it opens so many doors. 
And obviously, any other language will help as well. Spanish is a very useful language. Um, yeah, Chinese is obviously going to be huge, but yes, I do really think that English is the main language. Yeah, but our world, as we know, is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. And we need a way to communicate based on history. It's just, right now, it's English, but... Yes, and I think it will be for quite a while. I mean, English is the language of the internet as well, which is obviously a huge thing. So many kids now pick up most of their English from the internet, which I think is a great source of inspiration. Um, I, I can't see English going anywhere, really. What are your thoughts on learning, and I'm asking this also as like a former English teacher, what do you think about speaking, as you said, proper English, learn English properly? Because there's, a, there's the people who think, as long as you can communicate, that's good enough, that's important, you know, and that's fine. But there are people who they know you must be perfect, your pronunciation must be perfect, and what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, as a language fanatic, I obviously advocate people's effort to learn to speak a language fluently and perfectly, but some people just can't do it, and I don't think it's any use trying to force them, and I think for people who are more technically minded, who, whose speciality is computer science or, you know, physics or stuff like that, it's no use forcing them to try and be really good at languages because that's just not how their brains are wired. So yeah, I, I can be, you know, completely anal about those things, but it's just not going to work for them. So I am very glad to help people out who admit that they don't speak a particular language quite well enough. I'm quite happy to either teach them or proofread their writings or help them out in any way whatsoever. But yeah, you can't expect all people to be completely fluent in language. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, would you enough. agree on that? I would agree. I would yeah. agree. I, I, I've spent a lot of years trying to help people in some ways become perfect with mm -hmm. how they're speaking. And sometimes it's just not going to, perfection is not going to happen. So exactly. I try to just make them feel the best they can and then get out there and learn about all these cultures by yeah. using a language like, such as English. Well, I think that's the right approach. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, how have you found this life of uh, being a translator on the road? So far, so good. I haven't been a translator on the road for very long. Um, I just started on this lifestyle a few months ago. So previously I have traveled a lot, but I never worked at the same time. It, it was always a long holiday rather than, you know, being a digital nomad. So I've only been a digital nomad for a few months. And so far I've really, really liked it and I don't think the quality of my work has suffered in any way. My clients still seem to be quite happy with me, so that's good and very useful. I do think it was good that I was a translator for many years before I embarked on this lifestyle. I had my clients, I knew I could count on them and I both admire and pity people who go on the road without having that client base who just think I'm going to travel and work on the way and I'll just see how it goes without actually having that client base in place. That scares me a lot. The job I do now for my income, I had been doing it for, you know, over a year before I went ahead and yeah. started and, and thought, you know, I want to feel confident and comfortable before I transition because yeah. maybe our personalities are similar in that way. I it's think they are. Scary yeah. and but in hindsight, I could have done it many years ago and the reason I didn't do it was because I was in a relationship at the time and my then boyfriend wasn't really interested in traveling that much. Even even after we split up, um, it took me several years to get around to the idea of being a digital nomad and in hindsight, I'm kind of wondering why. I mean, I had the liberty, I had the clients, 
I had the money, I, I could have started right away and I didn't. And I'm still kind of wondering what took me so long. Because now that I'm doing it, I'm loving it. Glad to hear you're loving it. It's a definitely a leap. And you have to find your drive on the road as well, because it can be quite isolating if you're just staying in hotel rooms by yourself on your computer. Yeah. I did that in Romania, as I think I told you. Um, I was there on my own. I didn't know too many locals. And I found I was fine, actually. But it obviously depends on what kind of personality you have. I feel fine on my own. I have to say that now that I'm in Basco, where I'm surrounded, <laughs> By all these like-minded people, it is fabulous. I do really enjoy it. But I think for me personally, I need both. I need places like Bansko where I can hang out with people I love and people who really understand what my life is about because their lives are very similar. But I also need time off to be on my own and do my own thing and really focus on my own thing rather than being sociable and I think for me the balance will be doing stuff on my own for a few weeks then being sociable in a place like Bansko and I hope to find many more places like Bansko I'm not sure if there are many places like Bansko but I hope to find them anyway and then go off on my own again and live in a hotel room and just be on my own for a while yeah I think that works for me. do you have any advice for people that are thinking about starting a lifestyle like this like I said earlier I think it's important to be financially secure so make sure you have your clients in place before you embark on your trip. I think that's really important for your peace of mind. Just knowing that you're going to have the money to travel and live like this for a while. Other thing, other than that, just, just go for it. Just don't be afraid. Just do your research. I find that is very important. Know what kind of places you're going to visit. Know what the culture is like. Know what to expect. I think that's very, very important. Yeah, just don't be scared. It's, um, you'll meet people on the way, you'll have fantastic experiences, you'll learn so much about yourself. It's such an enriching experience and I would recommend it to anyone. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming and joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. It was fun. Thank you for listening, listeners. And if you'd like to follow Martine's future adventures and see some of her drone footage along the way, please check out her Instagram at findingthatperfectspot. And that is all one word. As we've heard with Martine, it can really pay off to follow your passions with dedication and great determination. And it can eventually translate into making an income online and seeing those places that you only dreamed about in books or movies as a child. If there's something that you're incredibly passionate about right now, listeners, and you've never considered that it might start making you an income or even getting you free trips, I would encourage you to sit down and brainstorm some ways that you might be able to do even more with your passion or develop it or develop it into something that could start making you money right now and give you more freedom later. Our travel quote this week comes from Enid Blyton, the author who Martine loved as a child. She says, the best way to treat obstacles is to use them as stepping stones. Laugh at them, tread on them, and let them lead you to something better. I think this is great advice for those of us who might be feeling stuck at the moment. And I hope that you can let this quote inspire you to think of how to move on from a current obstacle you may be facing and see that obstacle as an opportunity to ultimately help you grow. Stay tuned for my next episode when I discuss my recent trip to the country of Georgia, a very hot destination this year and a place really opening its doors to travelers from many more countries. You won't want to miss it if you've ever considered visiting Georgia or if you don't even know a single thing about the country and thought it was just a state in the U.S. I can assure you that it's a very fascinating place. Have a great week and I will be back very soon. Mm-hmm.
Thanks for listening to the School of Travels podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to The Sam Chase for allowing us to use their song, In a Perfect World. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode, and remember to always let travel be your teacher. If you keep your options open, there are places you will go. They will treat you like the kings and queens your parents thought you'd be when you were born. You'd see it all with your head up standing tall, and you'd look back and think it's funny how you spent your time and money.